Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. I'm a Jungian psychotherapist and this is our final episode on technology in which I explore its role in our psyche. It is often said that technology is neutral. It depends on what we do with it. It can be used for good or bad purposes. This sounds like a truism, but closer thought and a little research reveals a different story. Technology is deeply intertwined with our consciousness in an intense dialectic from the beginning to potential end. Let me explain by taking two extreme positions. The first signs of an emerging consciousness in our hominid ancestors occurred around 2.3 million years ago and was expressed in basic stone tools. Between Homo habilis and Homo sapiens, the brain doubled in size and the technology of stone tools naturally became more sophisticated. Thus, Homo erectus was an efficient hunter and had an improved range of weapons, as well as domestic technology, compared to his predecessors. While Homo sapiens emerged around 300,000 years ago, it was not until 50 to 60,000 years ago that behaviourally modern humans emerged and once again we see a great leap in the technologies at this point. This relationship between technology and consciousness may be viewed as autocatalytic, which describes the process by which one part of a system acts as a catalyst for a coupled reaction in another part. The techniques of making sharper cutting stones, by virtue of making greater nutrition available and survival more likely, makes possible further mutations of brain and body, which, when successful, set off further reactions of the system. The technology develops further, and thus a developing system can become self-reinforcing and even exponential in growth. Technology is therefore interactive and even catalytic with other variables, all of which need to be conceived as a system. Technology is enmeshed and interactive with our genes, consciousness, human nature, our survival from the beginning. It promoted the expansion of our brains and therefore deeply influenced human nature. There was an interaction between technology, the survival of the species and genetic change over biological time. Technology is not an independent phenomena. It is deeply part of us. Now consider the other end of the human evolutionary spectrum, our current entrance into the post-human age, where AI is fused with the human body and the mind. Once again, it is clearly not the case that technology is independent of us, as if we can objectively interact with it. One of the transhumanist concerns, and popularised in many sci-fi films and novels, is that AI could completely replace humans. Here the argument of our supposed control over technology is totally reversed. It is technology that can dominate and shape, and might even dispose of human nature. After the singularity, not only do we have no control, but we have no understanding of how technology will be operating. We will be helpless. If we add Marshall McLuhan's argument, this becomes clearer. His famous aphorism, the medium is the message, applies to all technology, but especially the media. 
it is not so much the content of the media or medium, but the nature of the medium itself that is the deeper influence. Oral, print, television, radio, computer, electronic or digital mediums shape the mind in different and powerful ways. For example, the passage from print to electronic culture, especially books to television, is for McLuhan a movement away from individualism towards collectivism. To put it at its most extreme, the kind of mind that is formed under book culture is far more critical and individualist, while that formed by constant television watching is far more collectivized. Personally, I would say hypnotized. This argument, brilliantly and originally stated by McLuhan in the 1960s and 70s, could be extended to mobile phone culture in our own day, which, like television and computer entertainment and social media, has immense power over the human psyche. Nevertheless, it should be emphasised that technology is double-edged. Its tremendous capacity to enhance the human condition is only matched by its destructive power. While we may assume that we have control over technology, we invent it and can switch it on and off, for example, the truth is that it has immense power over us. After all, we were born into the world of technology and have no choice about it but to accept it as given. Few of us are even aware of the deeply formative power that media has over us. It's as if we are captured by it, as if our will is suspended. It's as if the television, the computer, the mobile phone are hypnotic trance mediums that capture us unconsciously. Using an entirely different example, the scientific inventors of the atomic bomb had no influence or control over its use with respect to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was the political and military decision makers who took that fateful decision to drop these bombs on Japan in 1945. Or another example, the introduction of face recognition and surveillance technology in many cities in China, currently, is the result of decisions by the Chinese Communist Party. The population at large have no say in it. Incidentally, these surveillance technologies are now being introduced in many countries. Britain, for example, is among the front-runners. And this is not the result of democratic debate, but rather the decisions by government and police authorities. Thus, we enter into the new worlds that technology shapes, hardly recognising how much we ourselves are being changed. With respect to the double-edged nature of technology, consider the recent increases in world prosperity. I put a number of graphs on my website, alanmulhern.com. Some of these are taken from Martin Wolf's Financial Times article entitled Humanity is a Cuckoo in the Planetary Nest. And he takes them from the 2021 Das Gupta Review, The Economics of Biodiversity. Full references given in the preamble text to this episode. The first of the graphs shows the growth in population and GDP per capita over 2,000 years. As is well known, for the vast majority of the period of civilizations, the standard of living of the masses has been incredibly low, hovering around subsistence level and frequently falling below it. 
Graph 1 shows a period of over 2,000 years in which world per capita GDP was stagnant and at very low levels for the first 1,000 years, then began to pick up from the year 1000 to around 1750 of the Common Era, then began to take off after 1750 as the Industrial Revolution got underway. And after 1850, as the Industrial Revolution spread, GDP per capita growth accelerated. This was especially the case for those regions, such as Western Europe and the United States, that embraced the emerging technologies and shaped their industrial and social structure around them. It is increased productivity, much of it derived from new and accelerated rates of inventions and technologies, that allow an economy to escape the gravitational weight of the Malthusian population trap. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the advantages of any productivity gains, especially in agriculture, were rapidly swallowed up in an expanding population. The Industrial Revolution increased the quality, the number and speed of inventions and new technologies. The subsequent acceleration in productivity provided the escape velocity required to enter an entirely new era of human history. As another example, graph 2 shows the long-term trend for global population and global life expectancy. Unsurprisingly, it's a very close fit to the world per capita GDP shown in graph 1. It shows practically static world population numbers for the first thousand years of the Common Era, with human longevity on average around 25 years. Obviously high infant mortality and the impact of diseases on humans with very little medical knowledge meant a very high attrition rate of population numbers. There is subsequently an increase after the first millennium in both these variables, population and longevity, acceleration after the start of the Industrial Revolution and then take-off in the 20th century. The other advantages, such as medical, travel, pleasure, etc., that are subsequent upon increased productivity and accelerated technological change, are of course very extensive. It is worth noting that graph 1 on the long-term GDP per capita shows a radically declining standard of living in Western Europe for the first thousand years of the Common Era, indicating that civilization can go backwards, especially when socio-economic stability and complexity unravels, such as in the Dark Ages after the decline of the Roman Empire in the West. We see similar phenomena in certain countries in our own times. Venezuela, for example, has suffered an enormous decline since the communist government took over power in 1999. From a country that has possibly the largest reserves of oil in the world, the oil industry in this country has actually collapsed. The country even suffers serious shortages of oil, petrol and electricity. The disintegration of socio-economic stability and the consequent technological ability of a country leads very quickly to anarchy, corruption and violence. It is of course impossible to withdraw from technological commitment to the world we live in without very severe consequences, even the collapse of civilization. J. Tainter, in 1988, in a book called The Collapse of Complex Societies, proposed an economic viewpoint that is of interest. 
Socio-political systems, that is, societies, are problem-solving organisations, requiring energy for their maintenance. Their increasing complexity implies increased costs per capita and investment in socio-political complexity, which reaches a point of declining marginal returns. Some collapse can simply be understood as a loss of the energy needed to maintain social complexity. Collapse is thus the sudden loss of social complexity, stratification, internal and external communication and exchange, productivity and technology. The sudden disintegrations of the technological infrastructure, which could be brought about by military attack, events of nature, for example tsunamis, volcanoes and the like, civil disturbances, political disruptions within the country, or even digital information collapse, can cause this. As our world becomes more interconnected and more technologically interdependent, and as our societies become more and more complex, then they become also more vulnerable. To return to our theme of economic growth, we now realise that very rapid economic growth fuelled by innovation, inventions and technological advancement comes at a very high price. With respect to ecology alone, as the Das Gupta report notes, it is now impossible to exclude nature from our economic analysis. While our distant ancestors were incapable of affecting the Earth system as a whole, we are now so doing. Unquote. Take, for example, the extinction of animal species. Graph number three, taken from the WWF, that is the World Life Fund for Nature Institute, shows the devastating rate of decline in Earth's animal populations since only 1974. But taking the very long-term evidence, the Biodiversity Institute reports... We are now aware that Homo sapiens has been responsible for waves of extinction in the animal kingdom. The first wave of extinction targeted large vertebrates hunted by hunter-gatherers. When Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa to the Middle East 90,000 years ago, to Europe and Australia 40,000 years ago, to North America 12,500 years ago, and to the Caribbean 8,000 years ago, Waves of extinction soon followed. The colonisation followed by extinction pattern can be seen as recently as 2,000 years ago when humans colonised Madagascar and quickly drove elephant birds, hippos and large lemurs extinct. The second larger wave began 10,000 years ago as the discovery of agriculture caused a population boom. The third and largest wave began in 1800 with the harnessing of fossil fuels. Human population grew rapidly from 1 billion in 1800 to 2 billion in 1930, 4 billion in 1975 and almost 8 billion today. No population of a large vertebrate animal in the history of the planet has grown that much, that fast or with such devastating consequences to its fellow earthlings. This era is the Anthropocene the age when the global environmental effects of increased human population and economic development dominate planetary, physical, chemical and biological conditions. This, the Institute notes, derives from a single cause, 
the growing scale of the human enterprise. Unquote. To which I would add, at the centre of this growing scale is, of course, technological expansion. Graph number four shows the CO2 levels in the Earth's atmosphere over 800,000 years. For much of this period, it oscillated between around 230 ppm, that is parts of CO2 in a million parts of the atmosphere. In 1950, the figure passed 300 ppm, the highest known in Earth history over the past 800,000 years. Today, the figure is 417 parts per million, and the trend is rocketing upwards at a terrifying rate. To make this a little clearer, Graph 5 charts global emissions and human population from 1751, that is, around the start of the Industrial Revolution, where the accelerating trends of these two variables are shown clearly and dramatically in recent times, that is, global emissions and human population. As is well known, fossil fuels create greenhouse gases that trap heat in the Earth's atmosphere, with consequent impacts on Earth's temperatures, rising sea levels, melting glaciers and so forth. With respect to the latter, alpine glaciers, for example, often feed rivers used for their fresh water. More importantly, glaciers in the Himalayas contain the largest store of water outside of the Greenland and Antarctic ice caps and feed seven major Asian rivers the Ganges, Indus, Brahmaputra, the Mekong, Thanwin, Yangtze and Yellow Rivers. Imagine the consequences of these water sources disappearing. And they are shrinking year by year. Global warming is an enormous danger to all life on Earth, not just human. Our long-term projections of the rate of damage are probably underestimates since they make little allowance for tipping points and non-linear accelerations. Quite simply, we could now be in a runaway situation of climate warming. However, it is increased and better technology that once again is presented as the only answer. For example, it is hoped, and I stress that word, there will be a passage to net zero emissions, carbon emissions, by 2050 with a shift towards solar and wind-generated electricity, combined with hydrogen, batteries and other forms of storage, as well as a role for bioenergy and carbon capture in the medium run. Internet connectivity between all power grids and energy users could provide great productivity improvements. Thanks to the collapse in cost of renewable energy, it is argued this transition is now both feasible and cheap. Again, see Wolf's Financial Times article for a well-presented argument. There will be great difficulties arising from this anticipated energy transition from fossil fuels to clean renewable energies. But the techno-optimists believe they can be overcome by technological ingenuity and commitment from government and the financial sector. We are therefore on the cusp of a great transition in our use of energy. If we stay on the path we are on of accelerating CO2 levels, we are sunk. If we prove to be mistaken in our choices of new energy sources and technologies, 
then the misconceived investments may illustrate Tainter's arguments that declining returns set in and impoverish us and social structure is endangered. If the new choices prove disastrously wrong, then the argument that has been presented in 2006 by James Lovelock in his book The Revenge of Gaia will prove prophetic and we would have been better served preparing for survival in the midst of inevitable severe consequences of global warming. There are currently stated commitments by the European Union, United States and China for their economies to be carbon net zero by 2050, case of China 2060. This may be a last chance to slow down an emerging tragedy for life on Earth. We are at an historic juncture, obviously, to take responsibility for the planet as a whole. Humanity will not go back to its pre-modern existence. It cannot abandon the technologies it has developed, no matter how dangerous. It can only commit itself to more, since well-directed technological change is, for the techno-optimists, obviously central to the great energy transition project. Once again, to think we have some independent control over our technological commitments is illusory. We are bound, body and possibly soul, to technologies that will lead us we don't know where. But climate change is not the only serious risk to humanity. Others include nuclear war, engineered pandemics and other catastrophes resulting from emerging technologies. These disasters could cause unimaginable loss, immense harm and also have the potential to wipe out humanity entirely. Such risks may seem unlikely and distant. Nuclear weapons and climatic change themselves would only a short time ago have been unimaginable. It may be that emerging technologies introduce new risk that are even harder to imagine. The current pandemic obviously throws up the great dangers of engineered pandemics of the future causing immense damage. Managing existential risk may prove to be the most decisive geopolitical challenge of the 21st century. Self-species extinction through warfare, nuclear terror or error, or the impact of artificial intelligence, climate change, nanotechnology, or a combination of factors can unravel the complexity of the human project. And if so, we fail to pass this mighty hurdle that is in front of us. The development of technology is one of the most powerful forces in the human psyche and its power is accelerating. It is naive to think we are in control of it. Stage by stage, it has more control over us. However, it is also self-evidently true that it is the product of our mind, especially the left hemisphere of the brain. As Ian McGilchrist has informed us, in his book, The Master and the Emissary. It therefore follows that we are split in our very psyche, our hemispheric division. Our human nature is profoundly 
divided. It was the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume who observed that reason is slave to the passions, that it serves our need for profit, position, power and security, and Freud would add sexuality. But the opposite is also true. Reason, in the shape of technology, increasingly takes over the psyche. The left hemisphere, the emissary in McGilchrist's powerful metaphor, takes over and dispenses with the master, the right hemisphere. Remember, the left hemisphere is more analytical, it breaks things down, it analyses, dissects, and it's more closely linked to technology. Whereas the right hemisphere shows the gestalt of things, is more connected to the body, and is more connected to the sensory reality that connects us to the real world. It gives us the overall meaning and gestalt of things. The rational brain, that is the left hemisphere, in serving the passions, these profit, position, power, security and so on, has a death potential impulse within it. It destroys the natural, organic life of the deeper mind, that is the right hemisphere, just as it destroys nature in the wonderful, miraculous world we have been blessed with. It therefore can destroy the life outside and the life inside. Technology, then, is never simply a tool we use. Yes, it is created by us, but it is also shaping us. As the Homo lineage emerged, it was in a dialectic with our genes. Our enlarged brains, upright posture and remodelled body did not appear in one leap, but evolved over millions of years, with various genes being selected for their success in adaption and survival. The hand with the opposable thumb that made possible the greater precision that created improved stone tools evolved slowly, each improvement being rewarded with greater survival. Technology and our genetic structure were interacting with one another from the start. However, this story, according to many technologists and certainly transhumanists, will have an end. In the near future, technology in the form of AI will improve upon itself. It will be self-learning and increasingly self-creating. What starts evolution as an elementary embodiment of our experimentation and our thought becomes increasingly a thing in itself, a reification. It becomes a separate and independent force. Some think it will evolve by its own incomprehensible logic that will be beyond our understanding. In the near future, it could dominate us and hold us in its power. It could even destroy us. If you think this could never happen, then consider the events in September 1983, three weeks after the Soviet military had shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, when there was an incident at the command centre of the nuclear early warning system when the malfunctioning Soviet satellite warning system reported that an intercontinental ballistic missile had been launched at Russia from America and was being followed by five other missiles. 
It so happened that the Soviet military protocol for retaliation was not followed by the command officer called Petrov. Bruce Blair, former president of the World Security Institute in Washington, commented afterwards that at that time, United States-Soviet relations had deteriorated to the point where the Soviet Union as a system, not just the Kremlin, not just the KGB, was geared to expect an attack and to retaliate very quickly to it. It was on hair-trigger alert. It was very nervous and prone to mistakes and accidents. The false alarm that happened on Petrov's watch could not have come about at a more dangerous, intense phase in US-Soviet relations, he comments. He also added, The Russians saw a US government preparing for a first strike, headed by a president, Ronald Reagan, capable of ordering a first strike. Regarding the incident involving Petrov, Bruce Blair said, I think this is the closest our country has come to accidental nuclear war. Unquote. And that was almost 30 years ago. Changing the narrative entirely, and in conclusion to this mini-series on technology, I find myself reaching for a mythological image to make sense of all this, and one that leaps to mind is the Nataraja, the dancing Shiva of Hindu mythology, who in an iconic statue is poised in a yoga position, with one hand holding the drum, bringing creation into existence, and the other, the fire that destroys it. Shiva is standing on the mighty dwarf, the ego, which as well as having reason, as its ideal, is ruled by the passions, fear, greed, sexuality, power and so forth. Could this be a message about the creative, destructive nature of our technologies, as well as, of course, our minds? Will it be only when we can overcome the dominance of the mighty dwarf and consciously realise the great opposites that dominate the cosmos and our psyche that we will pass beyond this stage?